about you, but I found that having a bit of a Christmas break was quite nice in that it meant that um, I could catch up with friends uh, and with family um, and all those kind of things. And there was one occasion where I was at home between Christmas and New Year where I had a chance to uh, pop out to a friend's house and there was a few of us coming around and we were going to have breakfast together and have a bit of a catch-up. So it was great. We were all sitting there drinking tea, chatting away. Uh, The bacon sandwich has come out, nicely prepared for for us by my friend. Um, And then as we all bit into our sandwiches, there was a tangible silence. Uh, One of those silences that you can just kind of feel. Uh, And as we looked around each other, uh, we were kind of asking each other the question, what is posing as bacon in our sandwiches? Because this isn't bacon. Uh, It turns out that um, in an attempt to be more healthy, my loving, but on this occasion very misguided friend, had decided to buy us veggie bacon instead of the real deal. Uh, It was nothing in comparison to real bacon, not worth bothering with at all. And we lovingly made that quite clear to her. But life is full of it, isn't it? Um, Life is full of things um, to a lesser or greater degree, uh, things that we uh, hope are going to be just as good, uh, but in reality do not compare in any way, shape or form to the real deal. Uh, Supermarket baked beans, you know, they're quite nice, they're fine. But Heinz, that is definitely the real deal. Instant coffee, uh, it's nothing really in comparison, is it, to freshly ground coffee. Coke, Coca-Cola, that is the real deal. Whatever Pepsi say, I'm definitely a fan of Coke, um, Coca-Cola. And these things, well, potentially to the, ex- to the exclusion of fake bacon, um, they seem okay but t- until we discover the real thing. Um, when, we do, when we discover the real thing, we discover that actually uh, these lesser things that exist in our world are nothing in comparison. Uh, last week, we opened uh, Micah, and we started, we had a bit of an overview of what the whole of the book of Micah is about. And we learned that Micah was a prophet who spoke to God's people um, when, at a time in their history where there were two kingdoms divided, Israel and Judah. Uh, and what Micah spoke was to the people who were in Judah, but it was concerning these two nations, these two, uh, these, these people of God who lived in Israel and Judah. And one of the verses that we looked at last week was in chapter 7. Uh, verse 18, and it says this, Who is like God? Who is like the Lord? And Micah's name actually means, Who is like the Lord? And as we read through the book of Micah, uh, we are left asking the same question. Is he the real deal? Or is there something or someone greater for us to worship? Uh, So let us begin by asking that question. Oh, you can't really see the picture, but who is like the Lord? Right, now I wonder whether any of you recognise this place. Uh, Oh, actually, can we just stop? Okay, brilliant. Now that we've all read the passage, does anybody recognise this building? No? Okay. Uh, Well, this um, is the International uh, International Criminal Court of Justice that is in The Hague, or most people would just call The Hague. Uh, The Hague exists to try the perpetrators of war crimes, genocide, and crimes against humanity. Uh, The Hague uh, holds great power and jurisdiction over the nations that are signed up to it. 
Uh, it is impressive. It is a high point of justice on the earth, and little else compares to it. If the Hague had a case against you, it would be very serious indeed. Uh, but in Micah 1, verse 2, we read this. Hear, O peoples, all of you, O earth, and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. Uh, compared to the Lord, the Hague almost looks a little bit like supermarket coke. Uh, and not in the right direction, uh, but nothing compared to the Lord. Uh, the Lord who is sovereign judge over all of the earth, whether the whole earth recognises him or not. Um, but also the Lord who is witness to everything that goes on in the earth. And he's coming to stand as a witness against all the peoples of the earth. Uh, he is sovereign and he is a standard by which right and wrong, good and bad, is ultimately measured. Uh, he is the standard of perfection. Against him, wickedness is measured, uh, not against the person next door or the other guy in your class, but against the Lord. Who is like the Lord? The God who has the right to be judged over the whole earth, who has seen and knows every piece of evidence. No one. It is easy, it's easy to read this and think, well, this is meant for Jerusalem and Samaria, for Israel and Judah. So what's going to happen to them? Um, but all the, the details of what happens in Micah happens in history for them. Uh, the Lord says in verse 2 that he's bringing in a case against all of the peoples of the earth. You see, the Lord isn't limited by time. You and me, we're peoples of the earth. Uh, the judgment that Micah speaks about, which is for Israel and for Judah... Uh, but the case he has against them is ultimately that case he has against us. And the judgment that he brings against them is ultimately what, is also right, what we also rightly deserve. Now, the Lord has a case against us. He sees our sin, our thoughts, our imaginations and our hearts. Uh, there is no witness or judge or place of justice like the Lord. And nothing else compares. And he has a case against you and me. Uh, and I have a feeling that if the Lord, uh, who is who's both perfect witness and perfect judge, is holding a case against us, then we're pretty much guilty, aren't we? Uh, to be honest, I only have to look at myself to know that I'm guilty. Uh, it's not a like thing. This is something that's serious. Uh, this is a picture of the, uh, the Japanese tsunami that happened not too long ago. I wonder whether you remember seeing it on the news, or similar stories on the news, um, or whether you remember seeing things like the earthquake that happened uh, in New Zealand, or, or in other places along, uh, around the world, Haiti, places like that. As we look upon these natural disasters, they're terrifying, aren't they? They're something that we, uh, that we wouldn't wish upon anybody. But as we look again in verse 3 and 4, and we ask, who is like the Lord? And we read this. Uh, look, the Lord is coming down from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads upon the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. Who is like the Lord? Well, as we look upon these terrifying things that we see within creation, tsunamis, earthquakes, things that we definitely wouldn't want to happen to anybody, the Lord is even bigger and is even more terrifying. 
I don't know about you, uh, but this is not the comforting image of God that I'm used to thinking of. Uh, if, I, if you saw this, it would be terrifying. Uh, this is a God who is to be feared. Uh, the God who created the whole world and everything in it, who can melt it like wax as easily as he made it. This is the God who has a case against you and me. And do we ever think about God like that? I think I rarely do. We're just going to take a couple of minutes just to think about that. Um, your leaders hopefully have some questions, so do you want to turn into your groups and discuss, and then we'll come back. <laughs> okay, so then we're left with this question, aren't we? Uh, why is it that the Lord, um, who is like no other, is coming down to earth? Why is he coming? Uh, and in verse 5, we read this. Uh, all of this is because of Jacob's transgression, uh, because of the sins of the house of Israel. And what is Jacob's trans- transgression? Is it not Samaria? Well, what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Uh, the Lord, uh, who is like no other, comes down, melting, uh, mountains melting like wax before him, valleys splitting because of the sins of his own people, because of his own people's rejection of him. Uh, he's coming down because of justice, a God who is faithful to his promises, who promised that the judgment of sin for rejecting him was death and separation from him. Um, and he's, uh, he's coming down to do just that, to bring justice, to be faithful to what he promised. Uh, now as we read uh, that Jacob, that's Israel's sin, is Samaria, and Judah's sin is, is, is Jerusalem, uh, for, the, for us that might leave us scratching our heads a little bit, well, what does that actually mean? Uh, but in Micah's day, uh, the capital cities, that's Samaria and Jerusalem, apart from being the centre of power and authority uh, and law, uh, for the rest of that land were also the centre of worship for the people of Israel. Um, Israel would go to Samaria and worship, and Judah would go to Jerusalem and worship. Uh, and Jerusalem is described as Judah's high place, a place of worship. And as we read further down in verse 7, the Lord is coming to destroy their idols. Uh, this is the case that the Lord has against the people, that they're worshipping idols, uh, worshipping things other than the Lord. Uh, this is the case that he has against the people of Israel and Judah. And it's the case that he holds against us as well. Uh, on one hand, in verses 1 to 4, we see that there was no one like him uh, there was uh, on earth. But our hearts are so easily deceived into thinking there are things and people that are so much better. And he's coming because he's faithful and just, um, and he's coming to judge idolatry. And the rest of the book, we will read how idolatry affects the way that the people live, that worship affects their life. Uh, you might have got a bit of a picture of that last week from the different sections that we read in our overview. Uh, it isn't good. But I want to ask you this. How do you feel when you hear people talking about idolatry, about your idols, uh, the way that we so quickly turn from worshipping the one true God to other things, success, money, popularity, relationships, pleasing others, you know, that exam that becomes the most important thing to the expense of everything else, uh, being unloving towards somebody um, because you'll win the approval of people that you want to be friends with, or maybe it's just for you bigging yourself up because you think you're incredible and you want to make sure everyone else knows that as well. 
Uh, I often can feel quite guilty uh, when I see my idols. Uh, but on reflection, I rarely feel broken-hearted. Uh, I know there are idols in my heart, and I often vow to change. But as soon as the feeling of guilt goes, uh, as soon as the next thing comes up, I forget all about my promise to change, and my motivation goes. And I'm back, trying to live for God, whilst also trying to worship these idols. But in fact, I, I never really stopped. I simply just became aware of the issue. And my problem, and I wonder whether you can identify with this, is that I see, as, I, I see idolatry as breaking God's rules uh, and not God's heart. But breaking rules, not relationship. I see idolatry as breaking the rules and uh, not doing things the right way. Uh, rather, breaking the heart, rather than breaking the heart of my Lord, uh, my God, my friend, who knows me more deeply than I know myself, who sees the complete depths of my failure and fallenness, and yet loves me more than anyone ever has and ever could. Uh, that my foolish idolatry breaks the heart of my faithful Lord, who is more beautiful and more worthy than anything else that I could ever set my heart upon. I say that I love God, and yet I so flippantly and carelessly break his heart and bring distance into uh, my relationship with him. I know that I do it, and yet I do not feel that breaking my Lord, my God, my friend's heart is a big deal. It's a huge deal though, isn't it? Um, have you ever hurt anyone that you love? It's gut-wrenching, it's gut isn't it, if you, hurt, if you truly hurt someone that you truly love. But I rarely see my idolatry like that. It so often gets me here in my head, but it doesn't really often get me in my heart. Uh, these things that we worship, um, we worship them because we think that they are better than him, that we can trust them more than him, that they are more rewarding and more powerful, more important, more loving and more lovely, more able to forgive, more able to save, more able to qualify um, me uh, as valuable, uh, more able to give me worth and purpose. Now, these are the things that we turn to instead of him to give us fullness and life, to give us purpose. Now, our God is a relational God, and when we reject him for other things, we reject him personally. And not his good, not his good rules, but him. And we put distance in our relationship with him. And if you look down at your Bibles, you'll see in verse 16, right at the end of the chapter, um, destruction and exile come to the people for their idolatry. They are exiled from the land that they were given to live in relationship with the Lord. Uh, they are destroyed. They have broken relationship with God. Now, we are not rejecting rules to live by. We are rejecting our perfect creator who loves us dearly and whose heart breaks with our rejection of him. And not because he needs us, but because he loves us. And he sees that the path that we are on which rejects him leads to death, not life. That the things that we have put our hope in will only let us down. We turn from loving him to loving something else, personally. Let me ask you this, could you ever imagine ditching your best friend um, and, and seeking all that that friendship offered in passing an exam? You'd say, no, that's, that's complete foolishness. You've sought something uh, that is living 
for something that is dead. That would be something that would be heartbreaking, wouldn't it? It's relationship-breaking. You know, we might talk about giving up stuff for the Lord, um, giving up our idols. But let me tell you, one of the things that I've learned the most since I've become a trainee is this, um, that you never give up anything for the Lord, not ultimately. Uh, we turn from things, yes, but that is not the same as giving something up. You see, giving something up has, uh, has this idea that, that it's, there's something uh, good about it, that you're missing out on something. But when we turn to the Lord and we turn away from our idols, we, we only gain. It's like giving up eating garbage and turning and only dining on the finest foods. And then you're sitting there going, do you know what, I had to give up garbage eating to have this steak. It's something that's ridiculous. But don't mishear me, I'm not saying that as Christians it's always easy. And there aren't sacrifices that we, are, that we are called to make along the way. Whether that's big things like friends and family even. Uh, but these things, are, these things are never as good uh, as what we ultimately gain in Christ. And it's not that our idols are less than the real thing. They aren't, they, I'm not saying that at all. They're, they're not anything. Uh, you know, supermarket Coke might not be the same as real Coke, but it is Coke. Whereas our idols are not significantly less than who God is. They aren't gods at all. And the Lord will come and he will crush them. They can't even save themselves, let alone you. And before we move on, we're going to turn back into our groups um, and, just, and just dwell on this, just to think about this. Our rejection of God is heartbreaking. Uh, there is love and life right there. Yet we earn for emptiness and death and to the illusion that they offer us life in the idols that we worship. And God sees this, not only our rejection of him, but our love and our hope put in something else that will lead us down the wrong path, uh, that will not offer us the things that, it's, that, that they say that they will offer us. And destruction and separation in relationship, it comes it is not an overtop reaction. It is not a flare-up of anger that is uncontrollable. It is the fair and the right price for our sin. It's not too much. It's not too little. It is the exact amount. Do you want to just turn into groups and just spend a little bit of time thinking about that, and then we'll come back for the last section. Okay, so um, who is like the Lord? Uh, the, We've seen that um, so far pretty much there is no one. He is the, um, the ultimate um, judge and source of justice. He makes mountains melt in his way and he's coming because of justice, because he wants to, because he's going to judge idolatrous hearts. Um, so we're left with this question, aren't we? Is there any hope? Well, let me tell you that there is. Um, I'm sure that as you read through the passage a bit earlier on, it might have seemed quite... Um, it might seem quite bleak, quite serious. But, I mean, it is serious. Um, but the hope might not have sprung out at you, um, obviously, as in other passages in Micah might point to. But there is hope in this passage. Um, so, you know, who is like the Lord that he can, that he can do something about our situation that amid um, all, of our, all of our heartbreaking sin and his faithful justice, he can offer hope. A hope of changing from our idol-ridden life to a life fully restored and uh, living with the Lord. 
as we, as we read uh, through the passages earlier, again, you might have just thought, mm, I'm, I'm just not quite sure where the hope is. Uh, but let's just have a look at verses 8 and 9. It says this, um, Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For her, that's Israel and Israel and Judah's. Thank you, Israel and Judah. Her wound is incurable. Uh, he has come to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. So this is this is Micah talking about um, the coming judgment on his people. Now I don't know whether you've ever experienced uh, one of those people who. Uh, are joyful at you getting into trouble or even at the prospect of you getting into trouble uh, they come pointing the finger um, well Michael could have very easily done that couldn't he he could have looked around and said because of all your idol worship disaster is coming upon you and you deserve it um, but instead Michael weeps for the sins of his people he goes about barefoot and naked a sign of mourning and if you know anything about jackals and owls, you'll know that their main activity is at night. And we get this picture that Micah is restless, he can't sleep, he's distressed about the judgment that his people are to face. And he lists their towns and the destruction and exile that is rightly coming their way. And he weeps. Well, to Micah, the prophet who weeps, the sins of his people are incurable. There is nothing that he can do about it. But Micah points forward to a greater prophet in whom our hope is certain. A prophet who likewise wept for the sins of his people. But not only brought God's word to them, but he was God's word. He is God's word. Jesus Christ, God's son. Jesus, who not only wept for the sins of his people, but unlike Micah, he could bring healing to that incurable wound. Uh, God himself, he went to the cross so that justice could be done, that the incurable wound of the people might be healed. Why? Oh, because he's both just, but he also delights to show us mercy, because he loves us. But Christ our Lord, um, who we are made to love and to worship, uh, he was destroyed for us, as we read through the destruction that is promised to, uh, to Judah and to Israel, uh, know that this is the punishment that Christ took for us. Uh, that he was destroyed, uh, that he was sent into exile, that he died. Uh, we read through this judgment uh, that is to come and it's terrifying. It is exactly what Christ went through on the cross for us. So that you, that you and I, don't have to. So that our incurable, by our uh, by his wound, our incurable wound is healed. His love means that we, um, that we can, sorry, his love is the means by which justice for our sins is achieved. By his wound, our wounds are healed. We are saved from God's wrath and judgment. And we're not only saved, but we can live in relationship with him. We are brought back from exile. His love is also the means by which we can change. Uh, earlier on, we talked a bit about we talked about our idols, about how guilt um, is a rubbish motivator. How often we can feel guilty, but not heartbroken. And it doesn't it doesn't um, motivate us to change the way that we live. And guilt is a rubbish motivator. 
Um, but love, love on the other hand, love is the greatest. Love is the greatest motivator for change. And it's also the power by which we can change. Uh, if we are going to turn from our idols, um, we need to worship something else. We were all made to worship. So if we're going to turn from our idols, we need to love something else more. Not just simply feel guilty about what we're doing. We need to love something else more. God achieves justice for us. And if we trust him and we believe in him, and we can live back in relationship with him. So let's God, let God's love for you both be your motivation and your power to turn from idols. And let your love for him grow and help you to see that our idols are nothing in comparison to him. That he is more lovely than anything else that you could ever set your heart upon. The Lord, not our idols. He is the real deal. And nothing else that we can set our heart upon comes close. Nothing else that we can set our heart upon can satisfy us as the Lord does. Nothing else we could uh, set our heart upon would go to the cross for us. And even if they did, that would not be sufficient for our salvation in any way, shape or form. Who is like the Lord, um, who knows that we're guilty, but loves us uh, and has achieved justice for us. We're going to leave it there. We can just turn back into your groups and just pray about that. Um, and then the band will come up for us to pray.